Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you, the people of God this morning, and to open God's word together. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we just heard read. Well, I think the big question this text is wanting us to ask and wrestle with this morning is this. How do you respond to the fears and insecurities you face in life? What are some of the things you do when you feel afraid? Who or what do you turn to when the troubles and the uncertainties of life are threatening to overwhelm you? How do you respond? Well, maybe for some of our younger worshipers, you feel the pressure of an upcoming homework assignment or finals that are due. You've got a big presentation and you don't know if you'll be able to pull it off. In those moments of fear, what do you find your heart turning to? Where do you put your hope and your joy? For some of you, your fears and uncertainties swirl around your relationships with others. Maybe your marriage is going through a really hard time and you're afraid of what the future might hold for you. Maybe your kids are struggling and concerned about the direction they're heading in life. Or maybe you're single and you desperately want to get married and the thought of being alone terrifies you. How do you respond to these fears and uncertainties? What does your heart look to for peace and security? Others of you may deal with fears and insecurities as you face the pressures and demands of work. Projects are due, personnel has to be managed, tough decisions need to be made, sermons have to be prepared. (laughs) It can all feel so very overwhelming and it raises the haunting questions of, am I good enough? Do I have what it takes to succeed? There is so much about life that can be scary and unsettling, isn't there? And what 1 Samuel 8 wants us to think about is how are we responding to the inevitable fears and uncertainties of life? What do we do when we are afraid? Where do we turn for comfort, for peace, for security, or to try to gain a sense of control? And most importantly, What do these actions reveal about our relationship with God? So this is what 1 Samuel 8 is about. 1 Samuel 8 asks and answers this important question, how do God's people often respond to fears and insecurities? And the answer it gives us isn't very flattering. But like a doctor who honestly tells us what's wrong with us so that he can help us, God is wanting to help us understand our problem so that we can receive his solution. God is graciously wanting all of us to see that when we are faced with fears and insecurities, our tendency, what we are prone to do is to reject God and our calling to be his distinct people and instead to stubbornly pursue human solutions for security and peace. This text is designed to be like a mirror that we can see ourselves in. And it's not always going to be a pretty picture, but God has so much grace for us through it all. 
So let's pray now and ask for God's help as we look to his word in 1 Samuel 8. Gracious Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Your word is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we ask for that this morning. Show us the ways we are prone to reject you and your calling on our lives to be your special and holy people. Help us to see the foolishness of abandoning you and stubbornly looking to other things for our security and peace. Call us again into a deeper, richer trust in you. Help us to look to you and live faithfully for you, even in the midst of the fears and insecurities we face. And we ask this for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, let's begin looking into the mirror of 1 Samuel 8 and see what God has for us to learn. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Version. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 3. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his way. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So in these opening verses, we begin to get a picture of the challenge Israel is facing at this time. The leader who has led them for decades has grown old and will soon be gone. And to make matters worse, Samuel's sons are nothing like him. They are wicked and evil and cannot be trusted to lead God's people moving forward. And in addition, what we learn in chapter 12 is that the peace and security that Israel has been enjoying under Samuel's leadership is starting to be threatened by Nahash, king of the Ammonites. News is spreading throughout Israel that he has been building an army and he has his eye on their land. So it doesn't take much for us to understand the fear and uncertainty facing the people of Israel at this time. Their beloved leader is old and near death. His sons are wicked and can't be trusted to lead the nation forward and enemies are threatening them. It's a perfect storm of political and national insecurity. And so the elders of Israel put their heads together and come up with a plan. Look at verses four through five. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. Now, at first, this sounds like a brilliant solution to their problem. By appointing a king to rule over them, all the political instability would be done away with. The people would come together under their new king and he would be able to lead them into battle against their enemies and bring the peace and security they long for. This plan is pragmatic. It's logical. It's reasonable. Yet it is utterly godless. Look at verses 6 through 8. When they said, give us a king to judge us, 
Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Well, that escalated pretty quickly. God sees their demand for a king as a rejection of him. According to God, Israel is doing what they have always done. This is classic Israel, abandoning him and going after other gods. This has been his people's pattern. When faced with the fears and insecurities of life, they panic and they reject God. They turn to human solutions to provide the security and peace they long for. So let's think about this a little bit more. Why is Israel's request for a king a rejection of God? After all, it's not like Israel had been forbidden to have a king. Way back in Genesis 17, 6, God promised Abraham, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. And then in Genesis 49.10, God promised that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So there's this anticipation of kings in Israel even before they are a nation. And then later in Deuteronomy 17, which we just heard read for us, after God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and was preparing to bring them into the promised land, God gave them instructions about appointing a king for themselves. So clearly God anticipated that Israel would eventually have a king to rule over them. And the book of Judges, which tells Israel's story after they took possession of the promised land, highlights the people's need for a king. After describing in gory detail Israel's sin and rebellion that was just running rampant throughout the nation, the narrator summarizes this time by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what seemed right to him. So the book of Judges ends with this longing for a king who will lead God's people in obedience to God. And 1 Samuel itself begins with the hope of a king. After giving birth to Samuel, Hannah prays this to the Lord in 1 Samuel 2.10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. So it's clear that kingship itself wasn't the problem. God had always intended for his people to have a king. So what is it? What is it that makes the elders of Israel's request for a king so very wrong. Why does God view this as a rejection of him as their king? Well, up until this point, the nation of Israel has followed a predictable pattern. They sin against the Lord, and this results in God's disciplinary judgment, usually in the form of attacks from enemy nations. Eventually, this leads Israel to turn from their sin and cry out to God to save them. Then God will graciously raise up a leader to deliver them from their enemies, and they will enjoy a period of peace. But sooner or later, the cycle starts over again. Sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance. Sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance. 
So the book of Judges describes this cycle over and over and over again. And even in the previous few chapters of 1 Samuel, we have seen this cycle. In chapter 4, right, the people's sin leads to a devastating loss at the hands of the Philistines. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, the people have begun to long for the Lord, to seek the Lord again. And Samuel leads them in repentance. Samuel tells the people to get rid of their false gods, all the things that they would look to for security and comfort, and instead to devote themselves exclusively to the Lord. And the people do this, and then God provides this miraculous deliverance for them. But here, here in 1 Samuel 8, that pattern is broken. Instead of turning from their sin and crying out to God to save them, they say, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. So what's happening here? When Israel is faced with the fears and insecurities of their time, they choose a human solution to their problems that sidestepped their need for God. Listen to how the people describe their desire for a king at the end of verse 20. They say, we want a king who will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. In other words, they want a king they can see and touch. It's too hard to walk by faith. It's too risky to depend on the Lord. We want to walk by sight. We want a king we can see marching out in front of us against our enemies. Someone we know will show up and fight for us regardless of whether or not we've been faithful to him. So in seeking this human solution to their fears and insecurities, the people of Israel are rejecting their relationship with God. Instead of humbling themselves before God in repentance and faith, they are taking matters into their own hands. They want the peace and security the Lord has promised to give them, but without the hassle of turning from their sin and entrusting themselves to God. So in some sense, they're acting as if they've advanced beyond their need for God. If we get a king to judge us and fight our battles for us, we no longer have to depend on God to do that for us. We can be independent. We can be free. We can be the masters of our own fate. So this was Israel's problem. Instead of desiring a king who would lead them in trusting God and obeying his word, which is what God always had intended for Israel's king to do, Israel desired a king who would replace God. They are forsaking faith in God for a king they can see and touch. And unfortunately, not much has changed in the human heart over the past 3,000 years or so. Like Israel, we too are prone to reject God and look to human solutions to our fears and insecurities. Though we don't cry out, appoint a king to judge us, we do turn to things other than God and ask them, sometimes beg them, to provide the peace and security we long for in life. So what about you? Where are you tempted to reject God and look to human solutions to your fears and insecurities? 
when you feel the pressures and uncertainties and troubles of life crashing down upon you, what do you find your heart turning to, being drawn to? Where do you go for refuge, for comfort, for security? Remember, just like a king, these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. However, they become a problem for us when they replace God in our life. When we look to them, not our God, for the peace and comfort we long for. So what are some of the false kings or God replacements that you find yourself turning to in your times of trouble? Maybe for you, you move toward a king who offers an escape, a quick fix to distract you from the fears that are threatening to unravel you. Maybe you open the fridge or look through the cupboard for something that will numb the pain or dull the anxiety you feel. Maybe you flip on the TV and escape into a sitcom. Maybe you look at porn or read a book or go shopping. Maybe you grab a beer or a glass of wine or several beers and a couple bottles of wine. Maybe you play a game or scroll on your phone, but whatever your escapist king of choice is, you are looking to it to provide the peace and security that your heart so desperately longs for. But maybe you face fears and insecurities differently. Maybe for you, instead of escaping from them, you try to take control of them. You make phone calls, you develop contingency plans, you work extra hours, you gather supporters, you clean your house, you get angry. In all of these things, you are trying to do whatever it takes for you to feel some sense of control over your life, to suppress the nagging feeling of weakness and vulnerability that you dread so much. And all of these, and many others as well, are false kings that we are all prone to look to, to cry out to, to give the rest of soul that we all so desperately want. And what God is graciously, so kindly helping us see from 1 Samuel 8 is that when we do this, when we turn to human solutions for our fears and insecurities, we are actually rejecting God as our king. We are saying to God, I can no longer trust you to take care of me. I'm going to look elsewhere for peace and security. You see, we cannot put our hope, our ultimate hope, on multiple things. As humans, we are like boats with only one anchor. And so when the storms of life come, we can choose to cast that anchor deep into our God or we will throw it on to the things of this world, but we cannot anchor ourselves to both. It must be one or the other. Either we will place our ultimate hope for peace and security and comfort in God, or we will look to other things for that. Listen to this quote from David Powelson. He helps us see how everything we do, whether we realize it or not, is informed by our relationship with God. Powelson writes this, people are always doing something with God. Human beings inescapably love God or love something else. We take refuge in God or in something else. 
We set our hopes in God or in something else. We fear God or something else. As humans, it's impossible for us not to love, not to take refuge in, not to set our hope in, or not to fear something or someone. So the question is never, are you loving or seeking refuge in or fearing something or someone? The question the Bible continually puts before us is what or who do you love, take refuge in, set your hope in, and fear? Is it God or something else? And what this passage in 1 Samuel 8 is helping us see is that everything we do is related to our relationship with God. Israel's demand for a king was a rejection of God. God is very clear. What they were doing was abandoning him and worshiping other gods. They had taken their anchor off of God and put it on a human king. So this is what the elders of Israel were doing in 1 Samuel 8, and this is what all of us are prone to do as well. And as we grow in being able to dig below the surface of our behavior, how we're acting, we will start to see that there is always a heart that is loving, trusting, fearing, hoping in, finding refuge in something or someone. And that's what's driving our behavior. And this is because God created us like this so that we would find all of that in him. But because of our sin, our hearts are prone to reject God and look to other things to give us what we long for. But God isn't done graciously exposing our hearts. So let's keep looking at Israel's request for a king. Look again at verse 5. The elders said to Samuel, look. You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. And then skip down to verses 19 through 20. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Did you catch what Israel is saying? They are wanting to be like all the other nations. And this is really, really significant. In addition to rejecting God as their king, Israel is simultaneously rejecting their calling to be God's distinct people. You see, God had chosen them out of all the nations of the earth to be his special and holy people, to be distinct from the world, and in so doing, to provide a compelling and faithful witness to the world. This was Israel's calling. They were to stand out among the nations as the unique people of God, not blend in with the nations. But now, when faced with the fears and insecurities of life, they're rejecting God and they're calling to be his holy people. They want to be just like all the other nations. To be God's special people now seems too costly, too risky. Instead, it seems safer 
and easier to just go with the flow, to fit in with the ways of the world, to compromise their witness. Dale Ralph Davis calls this our aversion to holiness. He writes, we do not like to be different for God's sake. We do not like to be distinct. We would rather blend. And this is because it's scary to stick out, isn't it? It's hard to be different. It feels so much safer and easier to simply blend in, to be like everyone else. And yet what we must see is that to do this is to deny our very identity as God's distinct, holy, and special people. What 1 Samuel 8 is forcing us to wrestle with this morning is where in our lives are we feeling this pressure to compromise our faithfulness to God? Where is the cost of being different from the world feeling like too big a price for you to pay? I think a big one right now in our culture is the growing pressure to abandon the Bible's teaching that God created humanity as male and female, and he created sex to be enjoyed exclusively between a husband and a wife in marriage. This clear biblical teaching is being challenged all across our culture, and many Christians, churches, and even denominations are caving under the pressure and choosing to become just like all the other nations. Dear friends, this is hard. It's so hard. It can be so scary to stand courageously and compassionately for the truth, especially when loved ones or even your own heart are pulling you in a different direction on this issue. However, I want to encourage you that despite the pressures we face from without and the pressures you may even face from within your own heart, we must not give into the temptation to compromise our calling to be God's holy and distinct people. Tim Chester writes, it is worth reflecting on how the church today finds it very easy to allow or even desire our behavior to be governed, our identity to be shaped, and our message to be directed by the nations or cultures around us rather than by our God. We may not want a king in order to be like all the others, but we do want to be like them. It is attractive, it is popular, and it is more comfortable. But it is also a rejection of our identity and calling. To become like the world is a rejection, church, of our identity and calling. So let's reflect on this and allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. In your life, your life, where are you feeling the pressure to compromise? What is threatening your faithfulness to God? In what ways have you become just like everyone else around you?
what we have seen so far is that Israel's problem was that when faced with their fears and insecurities, they rejected God and their calling to be his holy and distinct people and instead sought to find peace and security through human solutions. So let's look now at verses 9 through 18 and hear God's gracious warning to everyone who rejects him as king. God tells Samuel, verse 9, Listen to the people, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourself. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. What a warning God issues for his people. God clearly lays out the consequences for their choice. And did you catch the word that God uses over and over again to describe what a king will do? A king will take, 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 take. Yeah, he'll go out before them and he'll fight their battles, but it will come at a steep cost. He will take their sons and daughters. He will take their best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards. He will take a tenth of their grain and their vineyards. He will take their servants, and he will take their animals. He will take and take and take until the people of Israel begin to feel like his slaves and cry out to God for deliverance, just like their ancestors did when they were slaves in Egypt. However, despite the clarity of the warning, the people stubbornly, refuse to listen. Walking by faith is just too scary. They want to walk by sight. Verses 19 through 22, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then, then we'll be like all the other nations Our king will judge us. He'll go out before us and he'll fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. In the coming weeks, you'll learn more about the king God will give his people. But before we conclude I want to return to the gracious warning of this text. I think it is so fitting 
that the word God uses to describe what Israel's king will do is take. Isn't this exactly what all the God replacements we turn to eventually do as well? Though they provide some short-term satisfaction, the peace and security they provide for us comes at a cost. Slowly but surely, the God replacements we look to, to take from us, they begin to take from us and enslave us. Our modern word for this is addiction, a type of slavery to what we had looked to for deliverance. And if left unchecked, these God replacements lead to us becoming alcoholics, shopaholics, workaholics, TVaholics, gluttons, porn addicts, enslaved to the false kings we turn to for comfort and peace. And these kings are ruthless in their demands of us. They take our time, they take our money, they take our relationships with those we love. They take our joy, they take our mental health, they take our freedom, they take and take and take and take. Dear friends, this is what all the false kings we turn to will do to us. What we need, what we need is a king who gives. A king who says, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the kind of king we need, and this is the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus came to this earth not to take from us, but to give himself for us. No wonder Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is a king who is so very different from all the kings of this earth. Jesus willingly laid down his very life for us, paying our debt for our sins, and then he rose three days later as our victorious king. And now he promises to give full, complete forgiveness of all sin and the gift of eternal life to any who are willing to abandon their foolish allegiance to the kings who take and instead to love, to trust, to find refuge in, to set their hope in Jesus, the king who gave himself for them. You see, Jesus is a king who truly gives the peace and the security and the comfort we all so desperately long for. Listen to what King Jesus promises to give his fearful, insecure people. He promises in Psalm 46, I am your refuge and strength, a helper who is always found, not sometimes, who is always always found in times of trouble. Therefore, do not be afraid. King Jesus is a helper who is always found in our times of trouble. He's always there for us when we need him. No matter what time of the day or night, Jesus is always available. And so we do not need to be afraid. And in calling us to not be afraid, Jesus isn't scolding us for being fearful. He's like a loving parent comforting their scared child, saying, there, there, little one. You don't need to be afraid. I'm here. I'm with you. I love you. 
everything is going to be okay. And in Psalm 91, King Jesus says, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield around you. This is what King Jesus promises to give his people. He promises to give the protective shield of his faithfulness to you, to cover you and hold you close and keep you safe and secure under his strong wings. So do you believe that, dear Christian? In your moments of fear and uncertainty, do you believe that Jesus' faithful love is enough for you that whatever is threatening you cannot separate you from Jesus' faithful love and care for you, that you are truly safe. And listen to what King Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus tells his fearful, scared disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and we could say, be my distinct and holy people. Don't become like the nations, but make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, remember, dear children, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a king we have in Jesus. A king who will never, ever leave us or forsake us. A king who promises to always be for, there for us. A king who goes out before us and fights our battles for us. So my final question for us this morning is simple. When we face the inevitable fears and insecurities of life, how will we respond? Will we, by God's grace, entrust ourselves to King Jesus and faithfully live as his holy and distinct people in the world? Or will we reject the God who gives for a king who takes? Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we worship you this morning. There is truly none like you. King Jesus, you are awesome in power and holiness, and yet you willingly gave yourself for us. You are not a king who takes, but a king who gives. Protect us from going after other kings besides you, kings who will take and take and take and eventually enslave us. Grant us grace to look to you for the security and peace our hearts long for. And may we live faithfully in this world as your holy and distinct people. We ask all these things in your holy and great name. Amen.